is uh, wonderful to see everybody here this morning, and I want to welcome you, and I invite you to take your copy of scriptures and turn to Jeremiah, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at chapters 30 to 33, but I'm going to ask you uh, now to turn to chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter 31, and for those of you who have not been with us over the last several weeks, uh, we have been in a series in the book of Jeremiah, and we're looking at it uh, in big chunks. Jeremiah is actually the longest book in the Bible. Some of you might say, what about Psalms? There's 150 Psalms. But actually, by word count, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. And so we're trying to cover the whole book in about eight or nine weeks. And so we're looking at big chunks of the book of Jeremiah. But this week, we're going to cover Jeremiah 30 to 33. Uh, But to get to focus in on Jeremiah 30 to 33, uh, we're going to actually, and get a sense of the whole, we're going to focus in on Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, beginning in verse uh, 31, okay? And I'm going to read through to verse, uh, to the end of the chapter, actually. So Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 is where I'll begin this morning, okay? So this is God's Word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the book of, brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Amen. This is God's word. Well, some in our society have observed that as a people, we have become more contractual than covenantal. Let me explain what I mean by that. Our society has become more contractual than covenantal. When we enter into a covenant, as we think about the difference between a covenant and a contract, when we enter into a contract, that is, we enter into a contract for some type of personal benefit or gain or service. So, for example, if you want cable at your house, you sign up online. Or if you want a mortgage uh, to buy a home, then you sign on the dotted line. 
And, and when we enter into a contract this way, there is definitely a benefit that we experience. And so we enter into various contracts to receive certain benefits. But contracts as a whole tend to be impersonal. Um, so the idea is in a contract that there are certain obligations, there are certain expectations, and if those obligations and expectations are met, then well and great, but if they are not, then there's a penalty to pay or the contract is canceled, and then both parties separate and go their separate ways. They walk away. A covenant, though, is different. In a covenant, no doubt, there are still expectations, there's obligations, but we enter into a covenant not just for personal benefits or services, but we enter into a covenant for the sake of a relationship, for the sake of another. We enter into a covenant not only to be served, but to serve. The covenants are, in this way, deeply personal and relational. And we also have to acknowledge that because covenants are fundamentally relational, if the covenant is broken, it can oftentimes be much more messy than a contract. That's why divorces are so painful. Because marriage is a covenant. That's why church splits hurt so bad. Because church membership is a covenantal relationship. You see, covenants are relational, and because they're relational, they are more risky. But at the same time, they can be far more rewarding and satisfying. In fact, we were created for covenantal relationships. Some of you here this morning, you might be feeling like, or perhaps you felt this way for some time, that your relationship with God is kind of like a contractual relationship. And maybe you didn't have those words to describe it, but, but essentially that's, that's been your sense of your relationship with God. You know, there's certain expectations, there's certain obligations that you're to meet, but it's kind of cold and impersonal. If you meet those obligations, then you assume that God is obligated then therefore to come through for you. But if you don't meet those obligations, then you assume that God will rip up the contract and He's done with you. But listen, my friends, the Scriptures teach us that God's relationship with His people is far more like a covenant than it is like a contract. In fact, in the Bible, God's relationship with His people is one long history of covenants. So, if you walk through the Bible, you'll observe that there is the covenant with creation, and then there's the covenant with Noah, and then there's the covenant with Abraham, and then there's the covenant with Moses, and then there's the covenant with David. God is entering into covenant with these individuals as representation of His relationship, His covenantal relationship with His people. And really, the, the best illustration of this covenantal relationship that God has with His people in the Bible, the best illustration of that, is the covenant of marriage. It's the reason why in the verses that I just read here, God identifies Himself as the husband, in verse 32, as the husband of His people. You see, God is saying that He relates to His people as a faithful, loving husband relates to his wife. 
But there's, of course, a problem in this covenantal relationship. We've seen it throughout the book of Jeremiah. All in the marriage is not well because God has wed himself to an unfaithful partner. And this is what we've seen throughout Jeremiah. The people of God have repeatedly violated the covenant. They've committed spiritual adultery. They have worshipped foreign gods. They've bowed down to them. They've sacrificed to them. They've adopted their morals and their ethics. And listen, things are so bad in this relationship between God the husband and his people, the unfaithful bride, that God is filing for divorce. We saw this in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, we read, Judah, that is the nation that Jeremiah is primarily addressing here in this book, Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went to and played the whore. And so what the Lord says here is that His people, they've been, they've been working the streets. They've pursued many other gods, many other lovers. They have played the prostitute, the whore. And as a result, they've forfeited the protection of their husband. And, 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 and as a result, they are now vulnerable. They are at risk. Devastation is about to ensue. As Jeremiah proclaims throughout this book, Babylon now has seen the vulnerability of Israel, the vulnerability of Judah, and is ready to pounce and conquer and take her to be their own. In many ways, this is the story of Jeremiah in a nutshell. Jeremiah is pointing out the unfaithfulness of the people, rebellion, wickedness, a broken covenant, and now the danger and the judgment that will come their way. But in the midst of this message, actually right here in the very middle of the book, in Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33, God makes a promise to His people. It's the promise of a new covenant. In fact, many people refer to these chapters, Jeremiah 30 to 33, as the book of comfort. Because here, what we'll see in these chapters is that the Lord holds out hope that the marriage between Him and His people will be restored. It will be made new. And in these chapters, what we see is a microcosm, an expression of God's love and devotion for His people. And so this morning, we're going to look at the new covenant. The new covenant that God promises with His people. Now, as I look at the new covenant, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It's one that I've tried to spend a lot of time thinking about over the years. And it's also one that oftentimes I still find myself like swimming in and drowning uh, because there's so much here and so much to understand. But as I look at verses 31 to 40, which we just read, which is a good summary of the new covenant, a good summary of these chapters, I would identify seven promises in the new covenant in these verses. And I'll just rattle them off quickly. The seven promises are these, a new covenant, a new heart, a new relationship, a new community, a new freedom, a new certainty, and a new home. Now, for the sake of time, we don't have 
We aren't able to look at all seven of those this morning, but I want us to focus on just a few of the promises here that we see in the new covenant. And this morning, we're going to focus on the promises of a new heart, a new relationship, and a new community. So first of all, a new heart, the promise of a new heart. Look there in verses 31 to 33, and we read these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So right away we see the announcement here in verse 31 that God is going to make a new covenant with his people. And we also notice that this new covenant is set in contrast to the old covenant. So I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the old covenant. Namely, here's what he says, the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now here, obviously, the prophet is referring to the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. Some people refer to it as the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses. This is when God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery, and he entered into covenant with them. But like all the other covenants that God made with the people in the Old Testament, the people ended up violating the covenant. They failed to honor the vows and the commitments of the covenant. This was the covenant in which God gave the people the Ten Commandments. But they worshipped other gods, right? And they failed to keep those commandments. They violated the covenant. And here is the fundamental problem with the covenant. It's not the covenant so much as it is the people. The fundamental problem with the covenant is that the people have a bad heart. They have an unfaithful heart. So, listen to the way that Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1 and then verse 9. This is what Jeremiah says regarding the people. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here we get a sense of what the problem is. Think about this in terms of the Mosaic Covenant. God has given the people a covenant. It is written on tablets of stone. If we think about the Ten Commandments, it's engraven on the tablets of stone. There are ten vows, ten commitments that they must observe in order to experience the blessings of the covenant. But at the same time, the people, the condition of their heart, Jeremiah says, is their heart is like stone. And on their heart, Jeremiah says, is engraven with a pen of iron, sin and wickedness. Like a diamond, it's engraved on the tablet of their heart. So here's the problem. How do you get this, the good, holy, right, perfect, just laws and commands of God into this, a heart of stone that's engraven with sin. One's external, one's internal. How do you get this out here in here? And the answer is, you don't. It can't 
happen unless there's a miracle. And that's what God promises in the new covenant. God promises, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a heart that loves me. I will give you a heart that wants to obey me. I will give you a heart that wants to follow me. I know there's some people in our congregation that have had heart surgery before. Heart surgery is always major surgery, right? Some have been like opened up and they do things and they put you back together, right? I don't think anybody in our congregation, I don't think anyone has had an actual heart transplant where they take a heart out, put a heart in. If, if they were to do that, though, you would need a very skilled physician, right? That is a major operation. But understand what God is promising here is not just the replacement of a physical heart. What God promises here is the, is the giving of a new spiritual heart that will not just affect the flow of blood in your body, but will change the way you think, your desires, your ambitions, your passions, your inclinations. It will transform you entirely. And for that, you need far more than a skilled physician. You need the great physician, right? Only God can do that kind of surgery. And that's what God promises in the New Covenant. You have wandered from me over and over and over and over and over again, but I will give you a new heart. Listen, in the Old Covenant, listen to what's, what's being said here. This is so amazing. In the Old Covenant, obeying the commands of God was the condition for receiving the blessings of the covenant. But in the New Covenant, the blessing of the covenant is that you will obey the commands of God. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, great Christian theologian, quote, I think the difference here pointed out between these two covenants, the old and the new, lies primarily here, that in the old covenant, God promises to be their God upon condition of their hearty obedience. Obedience was stipulated as a condition, but not promised. But in the new covenant, this hearty obedience is promised. End of quote. And this is the reality for all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. That you will be given a new heart. Let me ask you this. Have you been changed by the gospel? Has your life been transformed and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I'm not saying that you have perfect faith, but you have genuine faith. I'm not saying you perfectly obey the Lord, but you sincerely obey the Lord. If your heart has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the blessing of the new covenant in your life. You have received the blessing of the new covenant, a new heart that believes, that trusts, that follows. Second promise. Man, we could just stop there, right? Could it get any better? Second promise, new relationship. A new relationship. Look at this in verse 
33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And here it is. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, Jeremiah, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah makes this reality so clear that the people's deceit, that the people's rebellion, the people's betrayal against the Lord is so deep, it's so flagrant, it's so persistent that God has determined to put them away. In other words, the relationship, the people are now estranged from God. But notice the promise here. The promise is for a restored relationship. Although they are estranged from God, the promise of the new covenant is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now that's the language of covenant. There's a bond, there's commitment, it's relational, it's personal. It's really the language of marriage, right? If you think about the Song of Solomon, which is the most uh, romantic and erotic book in all of the Bible. It's the story of two individuals who are head over heels in love with each other. It's the kind of book that would make my two young boys go, ooh, that's gross, right? And, and the Song of Solomon is, is a book about the love of two lovers. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 2, the bride there declares, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Actually, I've known individuals when they get married, when they, they take their wedding rings and they, you know, they prepare them to put on, on one another's fingers, before they do that, they have those words engraven on the ring. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. That's the language of marriage. That's the language of covenant. And here the Lord takes that language and He says, I will make a new covenant with my people and I will, even though they are an unfaithful bride, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God determines to repair the broken relationship. The estranged, the disgraced wife will be reconciled, will be brought near, and the Lord says, I will be yours and you will be mine forever. But that's not all. We also see here in these verses that God not only promises that His relationship with His people will be restored, but He also promises that as His relationship with His people is restored, their relationship with one another will be restored. So notice this in chapter 31, verse 31. Verse 31, going back up there, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, watch this, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, why is that significant? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, because, and some of you who may know the, the history of the nation of Israel, originally they were one nation, one people. But the sin of the people led to division in the kingdom. And so what you, what you get is there's a northern kingdom, northern kingdom's known as Israel. There's a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. And they were divided this way for centuries up to the point where Jeremiah is writing here. They had been divided for centuries. And they were often at odds with one another. Israel in the north had already fallen. They had been conquered 
by Assyria. And now Judah in the south is in danger of being conquered by Babylon. That's a lot of Jeremiah's message, that they're going to be conquered by Babylon. But up to this point in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has almost exclusively been speaking to Judah in the south. Israel's already been taken by Assyria. Jeremiah's message is almost entirely directed towards Judah. Babylon's coming. You need to repent. You need to return to the Lord. But here in these verses, Jeremiah, he broadens his scope. He no longer just speaks to Judah. He says this new covenant, this new promise will be for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In other words, as you are united to God and reconciled to God in a new relationship, you will experience a new relationship with one another and you will come together in unity under the banner of your loving husband. God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people, Israel and Judah, united as one under the rule and reign of God. And we know that this reconciliation does not just stop there, but it will be expanded even beyond the Jewish people to include Gentiles. That Gentiles, that is all those who are not of Jewish heritage, through faith in Jesus Christ, would in fact be engrafted into the people of God so that we would all become one people, reconciled to God and one another under the banner of the love faithful love and care and protection of our great husband. This is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one people in Christ I will be their God, and they shall be my people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, one in Christ. And this too, my friends, is a new covenant promise, a new covenant blessing that as we are reconciled to God, we would be reconciled to one another. It's one of the reasons why here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, we are praying and we are seeking the Lord, and we are asking, and we are working toward becoming more of a multi-ethnic church. Because one of the promises, one of the blessings of the New Covenant community is that all of the people of God would be united as one. And listen, my friends, wherever you see that kind of diverse unity grounded in the reality of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, there you see the new covenant blessing of God. There you see a people who have received the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The third promise is this. A new heart, a new relationship. Third, a new community. Look there in chapter 31, verse 34. So the very next verse, verse 34, we read, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity 
and I will remember their sin no more. Now, this morning, we have the opportunity, great opportunity, to baptize two new members of our church, Charles and Courtney, and uh, looking forward to doing that here in just a moment. But as we celebrate baptism this morning, I want us to see, and this passage is helpful for us to see this, that baptism, what is baptism? I want us to see that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. So I want to just spend a few moments here explaining what baptism means and how it's different from the old covenant. So the sign, in contrast to baptism being the sign of the new covenant, the sign of the old covenant was circumcision. We see this in the Old Testament. So folks were identified with the people of God through birth and then through the physical act of circumcision. So uh, one would be born, then the male children, after a very short time, would be circumcised, and then by relationship to a male who was circumcised, others, wife, children, so forth, would be identified as part of the community. So the physical act of circumcision in the Old Covenant had a couple of purposes. First, it physically marked off individuals as the people of God. But then also, circumcision was a symbol of hope. The the hope was that that person who had experienced the physical act of circumcision would one day experience what the Bible calls the circumcision of the heart that they would experience a spiritual circumcision, that their hearts would be changed, transformed, set apart, that they would come to know and love God. But the reality is that in the Old Covenant, the vast majority of people did not experience that. So they may have been physically circumcised, but then they were never spiritually circumcised of the heart. That's why the history of the nation is so marked by rebellion and, um, and judgment. That's why we see this in the book of Jeremiah. You have a whole host of people who have experienced the physical marks of circumcision in their body, but have not experienced the spiritual circumcision of the heart so that they're transformed, so that they come to know and love God. In this sense, the people of God in the Old Covenant were a mixed community. Some knew God, some did not know Him. They may have had the mark of circumcision and identified with the people of God in that sense, but their hearts had not been changed. And so, this is what Jeremiah is speaking of here in these verses. There were some in the community who eventually, as they grew older and they were exposed to the promises of God and the Word of God, they would come to believe and trust in the promises. Their hearts would be changed and transformed. And they then would speak to those who were in the community, who were a part of the people of God, who did not know God, and they would say, come to know Him, trust Him, believe in Him, follow Him, hold on to His promises. But the reality is, in the Old Covenant, most did not experience that spiritual transformation. But here's the promise of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant in verse 34 is that no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, Jeremiah is not saying here that once we experience the new covenant blessings of God, we don't need any in teaching, we don't need any instruction. 
It's not what Jeremiah is saying. Rather, what Jeremiah is saying is that we will not be, we will not need to be taught, to be instructed in how to know the Lord for the first time, to experience a personal relationship with Him for the first time in the sense that like we didn't know Him, but now we do know Him. No, if we are a part of the new covenant community, we all know Him. It is one of the blessings of the covenant. So, last August, we did a series in 1 John. And... Uh, the title of the series was That You May Know. Now, what does it mean to know in 1 John? It means if we know God in the sense that John speaks about it in 1 John, it means that we've been converted, that we're a Christian, that we have a personal relationship with God. And John actually, in pursuing that theme of knowing God, which Jeremiah is speaking of here, John actually appeals to the new covenant promises that Jeremiah speaks of. So for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, we read these words. John's writing to Christians, and he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. The Holy One is the Holy Spirit. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John's speaking of what Jeremiah says here. They shall all know me. You've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has done a work in your life so that you all have knowledge. You know God. John goes on to say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, but the anointing that you receive, that is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Again, First John, John is not saying here that you don't need any teaching, you don't need any instruction, you know everything that you could possibly know. No, what John is saying is, listen, in the context of what he's writing, the false teachers who are saying, you, you need to listen to us so that you can know God, so that you can really become a Christian. John says, you have no need that they teach you anything. You know God because of the work of the Spirit in your life. And that is a consequence of the new covenant. Listen to this. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham, one's an Old Testament scholar and the other is a Christian theologian, they, they write this regarding these verses. Quote, In the old covenant, people became members of the covenant community simply by being born into that community. As they grew up, some became believers in Yahweh and others did not. This resulted in a situation within the covenant community where some members could urge other members to know the Lord. In the new covenant community, however, one does not become a member by physical birth but rather by the new birth, which requires faith on the part of every person. Thus, only believers are members of the new community. All members are believers, and only believers are members. Therefore, in the new covenant community, there will no longer be a situation where some members urge other members to know the Lord. There will be no such thing as an unregenerate member of the new covenant community. All are believers, all know the Lord, because all have experienced the forgiveness of sins. End of quote. This is the new covenant community. This is the reality of the church today. This is why we here at Crawford Avenue take membership so seriously. To seek to discern if people really understand what it means to trust in Christ and believe in Him. Because the reality of the new covenant community is that we have all experienced the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our hearts by His Spirit. So that we have come to know God. 
And listen, this is where it gets to baptism, okay? That means that the sign of the covenant has changed. The sign of the covenant is no longer circumcision. Circumcision was a physical sign of potential, hope, that one day you might come to know the Lord. Your heart might be transformed. It might be changed. But that's not the case with baptism. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. And baptism is a physical sign that by the grace and the mercy of God, you have been changed. God has transformed your life. He's given you a new heart. He's worked in you by His Spirit. And you've come to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the Lord. That's what baptism signifies. That's why the New Testament authors speak of baptism like this. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul doesn't say, listen, you were baptized with the potential, the hope that one day you would be united with Christ in His death and one day you would be filled with the Spirit to walk in newness of life. No, Paul says you've been baptized as a symbol of the fact that you have died with Christ, that you have received the Spirit, that you will walk in newness of life. Or he says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, not that you will potentially put on Christ one day, but you have put on Christ. You've been changed by the gospel. Maybe this will be helpful. I would say it this way. Baptism is not an engagement ring. So, you know, when you get engaged, you give an engagement ring to your fiancé, and there's, there's a promise made. But the engagement ring is the symbol of potential, right? In one sense. I mean, you both have good intentions and that's what you're planning to do. But I imagine when some of us got engaged, we might have been a little anxious. You know, like, I want this thing to speed along because I don't want anything to happen over the next few weeks or months or it would change the outcome. And so with an engagement ring, there's the sense of potential. This is what we intend to do. This is what we hope happens. But it hasn't actually happened yet. In that sense, an engagement ring is like circumcision. Now let me say, if you're proposing, don't ever say that in the moment. That'll totally ruin the moment. Don't ever say that the engagement ring is like circumcision, okay? But for the purposes of this illustration, baptism is not like an engagement ring. Baptism is the wedding ring. When you stand before the minister and before God, you make a pledge to one another. I am yours and you are mine till death do us part. And the physical symbol of that covenantal relationship is the wedding ring. It's done. Finished. So as we come to the waters of baptism, that's what's being symbolized. The new covenant promise of God has become a reality among us. By the grace of God, I know the Lord. And this is the sign that I know Him.
I have been buried with Him in baptism. I have been raised by His Spirit to walk in newness of life. Oh, my friends, the promises of the new covenant are so precious. And we've only looked at three of them. Perhaps, though, for some of you, as I mentioned earlier this morning, the Lord has for some time felt distant to you. Perhaps He's felt cold, maybe even irrelevant. I wonder if maybe you feel that way about the Lord because you have conceived of His relationship with you more like a contract than a covenant. But do you see here in our passage this morning that God is not offering us a contract. God is offering us a covenantal relationship. And my friends, this covenant is not secured by something so impersonal as a John Hancock on the dotted line. Or worse yet, an electronic signature with the click of a mouse. This covenant is secured with blood. You know, there's this right here in verse 31 is the only time in the Old Testament where the words new covenant are used. Behold, these days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, the idea, the concept is found throughout the Old Testament, but it's the only time in the Old Testament that those two words are used together, new covenant. But then they reappear in the New Testament. You know where they reappear in the New Testament? On the night before Jesus is crucified. He's having a meal with His disciples. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Luke tells us that Jesus took the cup. It's filled with wine. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, what Jesus is saying, they were all Jews, they got it right. The new covenant, boom, they think Jeremiah chapter 31. We've been waiting for this forever. This is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, Jesus is saying, I will go to the cross and I will bleed and I will die and I will shed my blood in your place for your sin and your guilt and your shame so that all the promises of the new covenant will be yours. I will seal my relationship with you with my own blood. Do you want that kind of relationship with God? You can have it. You can receive it right now. You say, how do I receive a relationship with God like that? My friends, as He has completely given Himself to you, now give yourself to Him. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Hope in Jesus that He died for your sins and say to Him, vow to Him, Lord, as You have given Yourself to me, I give myself to You. And all the new covenant blessings of God will be Yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we confess before you that we have considered promises that are so precious, they are far beyond even our comprehension. We couldn't feel enough joy and excitement that would be worthy of the promises that you have given us in Christ. And so, Father, we pause for a moment now and we thank you. We thank you that although we are like the people of God in the Old Testament, wayward and unfaithful, that you have pledged yourself to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would all receive that grace and mercy by believing, simply believing and trusting in Jesus. And Lord, we thank you now for the opportunity that we have to celebrate the life that you have given Charles and Courtney through your son. Lord, be with us now as we celebrate baptism, as we celebrate the Lord's table. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.